So this morning we take another look at what it means, this reality that we have been raised with Christ. And we've seen the last few weeks that this idea impacts our past, our present, and our future. We saw a couple of weeks ago how the resurrection is central to Christ's work and our salvation. Last week we looked at how the resurrection impacts our future reality, that the resurrection of Jesus secures our own personal future resurrection, that because he was raised, we too will one day be raised. This morning we're going to look at how the resurrection brings us to life, how we, through Christ's resurrection, are born again into righteousness. That's a past reality for those who have come to Christ. And then next week, Easter Sunday, as we celebrate the resurrection, we'll look at how Christ's resurrection actually empowers our Christian life today, our present reality. So this morning, I want to begin with these two fundamental questions. I think the resurrection answers two fundamental questions, really fulfills two basic human needs or two longings. And the first question is this, how can I be right with God? Now that may sound like a religious question, but I actually believe that every, every man and woman across the globe, a believer or an unbeliever, regardless of your background, Christian or non-Christian, I believe that they have this question burning in their soul. How can I be right with God? See, the, here's the reality. We were all created... To, to have an innate longing to be in right relationship with God. But I also think that every human being is, is well aware that apart from, from Christ, we are not right with God, that something is wrong. And I, and I think we feel this need. We feel this need to hide from God, just as Adam and Eve did. And yet, along with that is this yearning to, to be in right standing with God. See, on the one hand, we, we run from Him because we know we have no right to be in His presence. On the other hand, we yearn to be connected to our Creator. We want to we be in right standing before God. We want to be, be clean and acceptable. We want to be good enough for him. Now, some people in the world outside of the Christian faith, they handle this longing in, in different ways. Some try to seek to be made right through religion or through morality. Others, as, as we read about in Romans chapter 1, they, they suppress the truth, it says. They just suppress the truth and, and they say, yes, I'm disconnected from God. Yes, I'm not right with God, but I'm just going to push it down and I'm going to try to find pleasure and numb myself in, in the world and in, in my own self-exaltation. But I think the resurrection answers this question. Second question this morning is this. How can I have hope? How can I have hope in the midst of a broken world and an uncertain future? Is hope even possible? Right? You look around and the world seems to be crumbling. Pain and evil abound. Our future is insecure at best. At best, our future is uncertain. At worst, it appears as though we're barreling towards destruction, whether you look on a personal level or a global level. And so how can we expect to find hope? Again, if you look in the world... Outside of, of Christ, some people think, well, look, if I'm generous with other people, if I try to make the world a better place, that's my source of hope, right? If I see that I'm making some kind of positive impact. Other people choose to just ignore the dark state of the world around them, and they just, again, soothe themselves with the pleasures of the moment and say, I'm not going to look big picture. I'm just going to try to numb myself with entertainment or with substances or with sexuality or whatever it is, and I'm just going to try to have hope just in this, this moment and this brief pleasure, other people, you've probably seen this, maybe you yourselves have struggled with this, embrace just the hopelessness. And they say, yeah, the world is a place full of despair and I'm going to give in to despair. I'm just going to accept the bleak outlook of the world and my personal future and just give in to that mentality. But again, the resurrection answers this question about hope. Both of these questions, becoming right with God and finding hope is both answered in the resurrection. Why? Because the resurrection brings us to life. That's our, that's our big 
theme for this morning is how the resurrection brings us to life. And we're going to look at two main passages this morning to answer these two questions, one each. To begin with, we're going to look at Romans chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 4. you got the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then Romans. We're in chapter 4. The Apostle Paul is writing this Gospel, unpacking what it is that Christ has done for us and how we are made right with Him. See, when Christ rose from the dead... When you and I come to him in faith, though we were dead, we are now raised with him. See, the resurrection brings us to life. By the resurrection, we are born again. And, and Paul is, is writing by the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, answering this question, how can we may be made right? How can we be justified? And, and really, where we're going to land this morning is the very last two verses of the chapter. You can go to that next, next slide. This, this is where we're going to land this morning. The last two verses of the chapter say this, but, but even though we're going to land like, like a good long jumper, we're going to get a running start. So I'm going to take you through a good chunk of the whole chapter, but we're going to land here. It, meaning righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him, in Christ, or in God, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, that, so that's where we're headed. But as I said, chapter 4, Paul is making the case that our justification before God is based upon our faith in Christ, not based upon works of the law. So you're right with God, not by doing, but by believing. Now to be justified, I realize that's a Christian word, to be justified means to be declared righteous. God says, you are right and you are righteous. You are good, you are perfect, you are sinless. Not only sinless, but filled up with the perfect record of Christ. Counted as perfectly good before God. As I've said, we're all sinful. None of us can stand before God on our own. And so either, if we're going to know God and connect with God, either we have to earn righteousness on our own, or we have to be given righteousness. Now, the Bible makes it very clear, and, and if you've tried it for even a day, you know there's no way you can earn it on yourself, right? It's going to have to be given to us. And, and Paul here in chapter 4 of Romans is making the case that salvation has always been based upon faith through grace, even in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, redemption for God's people was based upon what was going to happen in the future, the coming Messiah and his death and his resurrection. And so Paul opens chapter 4 by saying that what is true for us as Christians was the same for Abraham. We talked about Abraham in our series in Hebrews, right? Abraham, the father of the faith, the one who God originally made a covenant promise to, the one through the seed of Abraham came the Messiah. We are children of Abraham by faith. And, and Paul says, look, what was true for Abraham is true for us. He also was made righteous, was justified by faith. And he's going to explain this. Jump now and read with me in chapter, or excuse me, verse 13. Talking about this promise that God originally made to Abraham, he says there in Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression." So it referred there to the promise. Again, God makes this covenant promise 
to Abraham, look, you're going to have a son. Through this son, you're going to have more descendants that you can count. And through those descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed and all the people of the earth will have the ability to know me. And this covenant promise to Abraham and to his offspring, it says, didn't come there because Abraham earned it. It wasn't through obedience to the law, but through faith. And just like Abraham, our status before God is based upon our faith, our belief, based upon us trusting in him. Our faith in Christ is how we are counted as right, as righteous, as as holy and good before God. See, works apart from faith means you're trusting in your own effort. If you try to earn your way to God through your own deeds, you're trusting in who? Yourself, right? But the the very definition of faith is that you are trusting and believing in something or someone else. And so to, to, to come to Christ and to be right with God through faith means that you're trusting in Him to make you righteous, trusting in the grace of God. He goes on, read with me in verse 16, and says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all His offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. See, this justification by faith that is guaranteed by God's grace was for Abraham and for all of Abraham's descendants. And that means that through faith in Christ, we share in the faith of Abraham. We are now descendants of the father of the faith Abraham. Now remember, God made this covenant promise to Abraham when he was old. If you know the story, you know Abraham was 100 years old. He and Sarah, his wife, were past the, the point of childbearing. And so you ask yourself, when this covenant was originally made, and Abraham and Sarah both asked themselves, how can this possibly be? How can, how can I be the father of many nations? Sarah laughed when she heard the idea that she was going to give birth in her old age, because to be honest, Abraham was as good as dead. And it seemed ridiculous that God would fulfill this covenant. But, but look at what it says in verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he, Abraham, believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abraham biologically, culturally, was as good as dead. In the ancient Near East, if you didn't have children, your name was not going to go on. You had no way to carry on your lineage. That, that was, in essence, your ongoing life on earth was through kids. Abraham was as good as dead. And yet, when the promise came, he believed God because he knew that our God is a God who gives life to the dead. Our, our God is, is not only a God who can call life out of death, but as it says there, he can give life to things that didn't even exist, right? God God bore the universe by his word, brought in, bringing into existence things that did not exist. But it wasn't just Abraham's old age that had to be overcome, right? Sarah, it says, we read there, was barren. Now I have to tell you, the ESV and other translations as well, they soften the Greek here a little bit by saying that Sarah was barren. They're, they're trying to be polite. 
Okay, but the Greek actually says literally that Sarah was dead in her womb. Now, now, women, you don't want someone saying about that. Your womb is dead, right? But that's what the scriptures say. Her womb was dead. And so the question becomes, wait a minute, how can, how can she have life from a dead womb? Because God is involved, right? This is the God who brought all things to existence out of nothing, who brought light out of darkness. And so surely he can fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham and Sarah and give children and grandchildren, pardon me, but to a shriveled, barren, dead womb. God can do that. And so Abraham believed against hope, against common sense, against the odds. He had faith that our God is a God who brings life out of death. And it says there that no unbelief made his faith in the promises of God waver, but instead, by the power of God, he grew strong in faith. And he was fully convinced that our God was a God of resurrection power. And and what the author is doing here, he's planting the seeds of the resurrection. He's setting up the reality that, that though hundreds of years later, Abraham's faith was based in not only the death of the Savior, but the resurrection of the Savior. And he believed in the resurrection power that was to come. And so his faith was a saving faith. His faith in the resurrection power of God is what justified him before God. It's what made him right. It's what canceled out Abraham's sins and flaws and failures because he had them just like you and I have them. Abraham's faith is what gave him a right relationship with God. What justified him and canceled out his record of wrongs and filled him with a record of righteousness that we all need and we all crave. And here we come then in verse 22 to our landing. Listen to this landing in verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, Abraham, again, was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, even bringing new life, even bringing a son out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And so, and so, therefore, that's why his faith was counted, was credited to him as righteousness. But those words... We're not just for Abraham. It says there in the scripture that it was for you and I as well. See, see, recounting the whole story of Abraham and Sarah is intended, is intended to illustrate what saving faith is like for you and me. That for us as well, if we believe in God, if we, if we believe in a God who fulfills his promises and he fulfilled his promises to Abraham, if we believe in the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, we too will be counted as righteous. You too will have your record of wrongs canceled and will be filled and credited with the righteous life of Jesus. Let me explain to you how this works. See, we're not counted as righteous because of our own good deeds. And some some of you got a lot lot on your list. Like some of you people are good, not not everybody, right? But some of you, by, by nearly every measurable standard, are doing pretty well. You're moral, you're good, you're right, you're faithful, you're a woman of integrity, you're a man of responsibility. Like you... If anybody could earn their way to heaven, like you, you might be pretty close, but we can't. Because even when we do the right thing, let's be honest, we do it with the wrong motivation. And even when we look right on the outside, our insides are just as riddled with sin as anybody else. And even if we don't have the big, blatant, outward sins of sexual morality or, 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 or anger or addiction, let's be honest, we have the hidden sins, which are not just as bad. They're actually worse 
the sins of selfishness and pride and, and greed and, and, and lust and, and self-righteousness. And so justification comes by faith, not by anything that we do, because none of our works, none of us can fully obey God. And yet through faith, we are raised with Christ. Because justification comes and only comes by faith. Only comes by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. And so Jesus, as we read here, was delivered up for our trespasses. That means he died as your substitute. He died in place of you to take on your penalty of sin, to pay your debt. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised so that we could be declared righteous. See, he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And through his death, our sin is removed. And through his resurrection, we are born again, raised with him, born again to a new life. We are credited, imputed with the righteous life of Jesus. See, listen, if Jesus had only died for your sin, your record of wrongs would be taken away. But that that was only half the battle. Now you are filled up with Christ's righteousness. See, Jesus Christ who lived for 30-some years, who never turned his back on the Father, never wavered in faith, never spoke a harsh word or had a harsh thought toward anybody else, always lived out of love for God and love for others, who earned a perfect, righteous record before God. He takes that record and says, here, now it belongs to you. Now it is credited to you. And so he was raised from the dead by the power of God for our justification that we could be made right. See, the resurrection demonstrates, and we talked about this a couple weeks ago, demonstrates that God the Father was satisfied with the atoning sacrifice of His Son. The death alone is is not enough. As we read and looked at 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Now, don't get me wrong, the cross of Christ is, is the beginning, middle, and end of our faith. It is central, but it must always be considered with the resurrection. Because the resurrection means that the sacrifice of Jesus was accepted, that the punishment was paid, and Jesus was raised back to life. And theologian Wayne Grudem, who you know I love, said this, if God raised us up with Christ, then by virtue of our union with Christ, God's declaration of approval on Christ is also his declaration of approval on us. When the Father, in essence, said to Jesus, All the penalty for sins has been paid, and I find you not guilty but righteous in my sight. He was thereby making that same declaration that would apply to us once we trust in Christ. Look, the moment that Jesus hung on the cross, hear me, he deserved to die. He deserved to die because he had taken on the record of all of God's chosen children. And yet when he come up, came up from the grave, when he walked out of the tomb, when he was raised to life by the power of the Holy Spirit, it was a statement by God, your sacrifice has been accepted, the punishment has been paid, and now you are restored to your rightful place as son of God. And Jesus, 40 days later, ascended back into heaven and is seated on that throne of grace. He is righteous, but that declaration on him is now a declaration on you and I. Because through faith we died with Christ and through faith we have been raised with Christ. And so, how are we made right with God? For some of you, it's an obscure question. For some of you, you wake up every morning with this longing, with this nagging sense that you're not good enough. That you're not right. That you couldn't possibly look God in the eyes. That he couldn't possibly accept you. 
and, and you feel disconnected. You, you feel like a fraud. You live your life with counterfeit syndrome, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your workplace. You never feel good enough. You never feel like you have approval. And, and some of you say, well, I, I, I feel that between other people, but not necessarily with God. I will tell you that, that your standing and your status before God has a direct implication on how you relate to the world and the people around you. And if you feel a sense of, of not being good enough or not being right with the people around you, that is because you're not sure, you're not convinced, you don't have the, the peace to know that you're right with God. And you think, I'm ashamed. I would be ashamed to ever stand before God. And, and I'll come and I'll sing the songs, but I'm not going to mean them. Because my, my pain is too deep and my shame is too wide. And you're not able to live confident before God or before others because you're not sure you're right. And you, you don't believe that you're righteous. Guys, put your hope, your faith, your longing in Christ. Not in your hard work, not in your moral list, but in the work that Christ has done that you can be raised with Christ. That through the resurrection you are given righteousness. You are credited with His righteous life. You are justified now right with God. This is what theologians call this, this divine transaction, this great exchange, right? Humans have been trading goods and services ever, ever since civilization began, right? And if you doubt how central trading and exchanging is, just, just, just go to an elementary school lunch table, right? And people are trading their snacks and trading their desserts, right? Nowadays, they're not supposed to trade because of allergies, but I, I have a feeling they probably still do trade their lunches. When I, when I was a kid, I got $1.25 a week to buy milk because I always brought lunch. I don't remember one, a single time I bought lunch. I always brought lunch, and I got $1.25 to get me through five days of milk, right, 25 cents a pop. But I never bought milk because I figured out if I didn't buy milk, I could save that up and I can buy ice cream like two days a week that was 50 cents a piece. So I was always thirsty. So I'm always looking to trade for somebody else's drink or even an apple and get some of that moisture, you know. And you ask your friends, like, is this a good trade? You know, some of you that traded baseball cards or whatever kind of crazy cards that, that kids trade nowadays, right? And you say, hey, so-and-so wants to make this. Is this a good trade? Let, let me tell you about the trade that Jesus made with us. We give him our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. That's this divine transaction, this great exchange. We give him our sin, he takes our sin, and you know what he does with it? He dies. And then he rises from the dead, and you know what he does then? He gives us his righteousness. The Bible says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, who, who knew no sin. He made him who knew no sin to, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We give him our sin and he dies. He rises back up to life and now gives us his righteousness. Listen, you can stand before God. You can look God in the eyes. You can be confident that your creator loves you and knows you. You can be confident that he's with you. Why? Because you show up at church? Because you did pretty good on your list this week? No, because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to you. Through the resurrection, you are right before God. As you see, we have the, 
the table of the Lord's Supper set up this morning. And so at the end of the service, we're going to come up to the table and we're going to receive these elements that, that represent for us the, the death of, of Jesus, the broken body, the shed blood. And we're going to take that. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to be present, to fill the elements that our souls would be nourished. And as we come and celebrate this ordinance that Jesus called us to, we focus ourselves on the death of Jesus, but we do so knowing that he rose again, knowing that, that as, as we celebrate with baptism, not only do we die with Christ, but we are raised with Christ. And so I invite you now to prepare your hearts, to prepare your hearts, examine yourselves as we come to the table, as we feast again on the work of Jesus. Yes, his death, but also his resurrection, because it's through the resurrection that we are fully justified by God. But there's a second question that I put before you this morning. How are we made right with God? Because we are born again. We are born again into, into new life, into righteousness by our faith. But the second question, how do we find hope in the midst of a world that's broken, that's seemingly doomed? Because through the resurrection, we are also born again. We're born again to a living hope. A living hope that comes to us by the mercy of God. Flip over now to, to 1 Peter. If you're in Romans, flip to the right. When you get to Hebrews, that book we studied for 21 weeks, keep going and you'll find 1 Peter. We're going to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and read just 3 through 5. The Apostle Peter, who followed Jesus, who knew Jesus, who walked on water with Jesus, says this reflecting on the profound, amazing work of Christ in his death and resurrection, the Father's plan, the power of the Holy Spirit. He says this in 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He starts off just gushing. Just gushing about how good God is. God is blessed. The Father of Jesus Christ is worthy of all praise and worthy of all honor because He is our Father as well. And He hasn't treated us as we deserved but rather, he's treated us according to his great mercy, his deep mercy. Mercy is to withhold punishment, to withhold harsh treatment and give grace and mercy instead. He hasn't given us the judgment we deserve. He's given us the favor. Why? Because he enjoys it, because he is glorified as he gives us mercy and favor. And so the Father of Jesus is our Father as well, and he's given us life. He's caused us to be born again. Again, as I've said, we in our natural state are broken, are trapped, are sick, are dead in our sin, but he gave us new life. He's caused us to be born again. God has fathered us. He has regenerated us, right? For those IT guys out there, he pushed the reboot button on your heart, okay? He's given you a fresh start, a new beginning. He has, he has recycled you, okay? It's still you, Right? But now you've been born again. You have been recycled, regenerated into new life. And we must, we must have this rebirth experience. You remember that account in John's Gospel where this prestigious, probably wealthy, powerful religious ruler, Nicodemus, 
part of the sect of the Pharisees, and he comes to Jesus in the night because he's heard about Jesus. He's probably seen him and heard some of his teachings, and he wants to know more, and he comes to Jesus, this prestigious man going to this peasant rabbi and saying, I, I don't understand. Tell me about the kingdom. And he comes and he says, how do I enter the kingdom? How do I know God? This is a teacher of Israel asking Jesus, how can I come into the kingdom? And Jesus tells Nicodemus that night, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Guys, listen, you can go to church. You can follow the rules. You can be good on the outside. You can be be noble and noteworthy. You can be outstanding. You can be a good person. But none of that will get you into God's kingdom. The only way to overcome the sinful condition of your heart, the only way you will ever see God or know God or stand in God's presence is to be reborn. We have to be born again to a new life. A life full of hope, it says here. We read here that it's a living hope. We obviously love this verse here at Living Hope Church. To be born again, not just to a hope, not to a meager hope, a a minimal hope, but a living hope. A hope that is alive. Now listen, Christian hope is not a desperate wish. Is the economy going to improve? Well, I hope so. Is, is my mother going to overcome cancer? Well, I hope so. I mean, we use that word, right? It's just a wish, and in m- many cases, it's a desperate wish. Or it's some kind of warped delusion, right? That, that things are going to get better, or that life will improve, or, or it's just an aspiration. I hope I'll, I'll get that promotion someday. You're just aspiring to that. But biblical hope, Christian hope, Christ-centered hope is a confident trust. It's a certain expectation that is eager and that is firm, that is founded not in your wishful thinking, but founded in the work of Christ. See, we can have hope for the future because of the certainty of the past, because of what Jesus has already achieved for you and I. How do we receive this living hope? How do we, who are weak, who doubt, who are, who are broken mortals, how do we come to be born again to a living hope? What does verse 3 say? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, your new birth, your living hope is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just good for him. We're going to celebrate Easter next week, not only because he conquered sin, death, and the devil, but through the resurrection, we are born again. Through the resurrection, we are raised to new life. It is our celebration as well. Jesus came back from the dead. He rose in victory. And when you place faith in him, you become united with him. And so through his resurrection, you too are raised to new life. When he walked out of the tomb, it wasn't just as though you walked out of the tomb with him. You actually did walk out of the tomb with him. Your status before God has now changed. Your eternal state has now changed. The spiritual reality in your heart has now changed. Your ability and reality to walk in this life as a son or daughter has now been transformed by the power of the resurrection. There's a cause and effect relationship. Between Jesus being raised into life by the Holy Spirit and who you are before God and you being born again. His resurrection is what causes our resurrection. See, every birth is caused by something. And here's how it went with the the birth of our four kids. First kid, my wife, like a trooper, she's amazing. She's nine months pregnant, going into work to, to do a, a night shift work, pregnant, gets out of her car in the parking lot of Christiana Hospital, and water breaks, spills down her scrubs. 
She, go, she goes in to check in to say, I'm not coming to work. I'm going to the maternity ward, right? I rush up to the hospital, first dad thing, completely nervous and out of my mind, not knowing what's going on. Her water's broken, right? So we're thinking, like, this is going to happen. But what happens is her, her water breaks, but she never fully dilates. She's got contractions, but not enough to really get things going, so they got to give her Pitocin. Ladies, some of you know the terror that is, it goes by the name of Pitocin, okay? So eventually, labor kicks in, uh, a wonderful birth, and my wife does amazing. Second time around, second pregnancy, again, her water breaks. That... Actually, no, that was, that was the third time. I'll see if I remember that story in a minute. Her water breaks, goes in the hospital. Uh, again, labor has started, but, but she, need, she needs some help with Pitocin. And part of it is because the hospitals don't want to wait around, right? They're like, 24 hours, we've got to get this kid out. We don't let it go for longer than that. Now, listen, if your only experience, young people, if your only experience with, with, with moms and pregnancy and labor is from the movies, like you might think that, oh, well, women's water always break, right? Because that's how it always happens in the movies, a lot of women, it doesn't happen that way. But for my wife, it always happened. Water always broke. It's literally like the movies. Third time around. I think this was the time where her water broke. We're in bed. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm literally like, hey, I feel like from the previous two times we know it's going to be a while. Could we try to maybe go back to sleep instead of having to do this labor in the middle of the night? Right? Like, because we know it's going to be a while. She did not go for that. We got up. We had to go to the hospital. And so I go in, and like the nurses greet you, which husbands like have little to no place on the nurses and doctors radar, right? You're like, maybe have a spot in the corner of the room. But I'm like, you know, telling the nurse, hey, I think this is what's going to happen. It's happened like this twice before. I think it's probably what's going to happen and contract, you know, of course they love that, right? So, but again, third, exact same way. Fourth time around, you know, you already know what's going to happen, right? Water breaks, go to the hospital, right? Uh, uh, contractions and, and dilation, need some help, get the Pitocin. And the, the fourth time, I literally walked in the hospital. I was like, who's in charge here? I was like, I'm going to tell you exactly how this is going to go. Because it's been exactly the same the last three times, right? Of course, they did not want to hear that. They were like, who are you? Listen, our children were born because my wife's water broke. Her water breaking was the cause. It's just what preceded their birth. It's what caused their birth. There was a direct cause and effect relationship between her water breaking and their birth. Listen, Jesus' resurrection is what caused your new birth. You follow me? Right? It's not a metaphor. It's not an example. It's literally what caused you to be born again to new life the moment you profess faith in Jesus. It's by the power of the resurrection that you're born again to a living hope through the resurrection. We are raised with him. Now back to the original question, how do we have hope? We live in a world where hope is in short supply. Some of you don't have to be told that. Some of you are Christians and yet you struggle with hope. Some of you are not sure if you believe in Jesus and and you struggle with hope. And you find yourself often surrounded, engulfed, at times feeling choked by the dark, damaged world around you. And you may put on a smile, but deep inside you're full of despair. You may feel hopeless. Why? Because you look at your future and it's uncertain and insecure. And you've heard the devastating stories of your friend's parents, people in your own family. Maybe you've seen it in your own home and you think, I'm going to grow up someday and, and, and get a job and maybe get married. But like, Look at what's going to happen. And some of, you, some of you have that lifelong friend who died at age 40 from cancer, right? And, and, and the, 
future is uncertain. You think, how can I possibly be a person of hope? Here's why. Here's how. By the resurrection of Jesus, we are born again. By the resurrection of Jesus, you are raised with him, born again to a hope, not just a hope, but a living hope by the mercy of God. Because God is merciful. And listen, we can have hope for the future because what's happened in the past is done. It's finished. It's accomplished. And it's been given to us. And even though we don't know what's coming next, even though what's coming next may be harder and more struggle and more trial than you could ever imagine, we know that there is hope, that there's purpose. We know that the love of God is real, that the mercy of God is real, that sin, death, and the devil have been overcome because Jesus walked out of the tomb. And so we have not only hope, but a living hope. Christian hope is alive. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you a geometry lesson. If you'll permit me, let me, let me give you a brief biology lesson. Because biologists will tell you that all living things have, have at least five characteristics in common. Craig, from what I looked up, the, some people add a sixth or a seventh. But these five are all pretty much firm that all biological life has in common. Right? Your kids have these five things. Your pets have these five things. Even plants have these five things, right? We have this plant in our house. Is, is it a, a, a fiddle leaf fig plant? Is that what you said? Anybody have, know what this is? I don't have a picture of it. A fiddle leaf fig plant. It, it started off about this tall. The leaves are huge. Now the thing is taller than me. The leaves are about that big around. The thing will not stop growing and will not stop moving and will not stop eating and, and, and feeding water. It does all five of these things. The first one is this, all living things grow. All living things change and grow. They increase in size. And listen, our Christian hope, our hope in Christ, if it is truly a living hope, that means that your hope day by day will be continually growing and continually increasing. And if you find that your hope is not growing at a steady pace, not that you don't sometimes take two steps forward and one step back, I'm not saying that, but over time you see growth. If your hope does not experience in growth, I want you to ask yourself a question. Am I hoping in the right thing? Because if your hope is not growing, it may not be in Christ, because hope in Christ is a living hope that grows. And the certain expectation that God is at work in your life should be continually growing. Second thing that all biological life, that all living things have in common is that they consume. All life needs some source of energy, right? And so plants soak up the sun and water. Some animals eat the plants. Other animals eat the animals that eat the plants, Right, But all living thing has to have a source of, of nourishment. You have to consume something. You have to feed your hope. And some of you are wondering why the hope that you had years ago now feels like it's withering. You may now feel like it's on the verge of dying. Are you feeding your hope? Hope has to be fed, and it feeds ultimately on Christ. And if you let it go unfed and unattended to, and you just try to coast, or you just try to think, well, yeah, I said the prayer back in camp, and, and, and like, I, I go to church when I can, that hope may end up withering and shriveling. But when you spend time in the Word of God, when you actively worship the Lord and pray and seek out fellowship and encouragement, you know what that's doing? It's feeding your soul. It's feeding your, your hope. And that living organism, which is your hope, will grow and will strengthen and will be nourished. Thirdly, all, all living things move. Of course, you know, animals move. Some of you are like, wait a minute. Plants don't move. Yes, they do. Plants move in response to external stimuli. 
They move toward what can provide life and they move away from what can harm it. And a plant will grow toward the sun, right? You ever seen a tree, you know, that like was next to a a tree that overpowered it and so all the branches grew out one way, why? To get sunlight. The roots of a plant will grow down and grow over wherever they can to find water. Those roots are moving, going out towards what can give it life. And your hope, listen, your hope should be responding to your environment. Your hope should be moving. When a difficulty or when a crisis arises, you can either give in to that crisis and that difficulty, or you can move away from it, perhaps circumstantially, but at the very least, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you can move away from it in the sense that you move toward not what's going to bring you destruction, but move toward what is going to give you life. And so, friends, our living hope should always move away from what can steal hope and joy and move toward God because God is the one that provides hope and joy to our lives. But fourthly, all living things reproduce. All life makes more of itself. And so I ask you this morning, I ask myself this morning, is my hope reproducing? Is the hope that I have in Christ reproducing in the lives of the people around me? Is the hope that I have being passed on to my friends and my neighbors, to those that I love and my, and my family, are, are they not only seeing my hope, but is it reproducing in them? That's a sure sign that you have Christ-filled living hope when it is reproducing in others. The fifth thing that all living things have in common is that all living things will one day die. All life ends. But guess what? Not our hope. Right? Because on this point, the similarities with every other living organism with biological life end because our hope is eternal. Unlike temporal hope, our hope is eternal that will go on forever. And the hope in Christ through the resurrection will never die. It will one day be fulfilled in eternity in our final reality. As verse 4 says, we are born again to a living hope, which is what? An inheritance. Right? And you get a big inheritance you know how you get a big inheritance? Some of you have gotten an inheritance check from a, from a parent or from an uncle. Do you know how you got that inheritance? Well, at least hopefully it wasn't because your parents like compared you with your siblings and decided who was like the better son and who was more obedient and more faithful. Okay, you get the big check. No, no. An inheritance comes as a gift. All you have to do to get an inheritance is to be related to the person, Right? either as a child or, or, or a relative or in some cases a dear friend. But if you are related to the benefactor, you get a piece of the inheritance. And our eternal inheritance, our eternal hope comes from God our Father. It's an inheritance that's described there in verse 4 as imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven. That means that your hope, that your place in heaven, your place in eternity, and as we heard last week, this is not just floating around as a, as a disembodied soul. Our eternal life is a true reality. Through the resurrection, we will be united with a resurrected body, and we will live in an eternal heaven and earth. And that hope, that inheritance, can never die. It's imperishable. It means what Christ has done in your heart cannot decay or be worn out. You can't lose it. You cannot be stolen when Christ has truly brought you to new life. It's imperishable. It can't be corrupted or polluted. It won't be spoiled by sin. It'll never fade. It'll never wither. It'll never decrease or never be diminished because this living hope that we have, that that we truly have the love of God the Father, that Christ truly is our Savior, that the Spirit truly does empower us, it's guaranteed. 
It's an inheritance that is guaranteed. And so now we can have a, a confident belief, a certain trust in what God has done. We expect him to fulfill his promises through faith. We have a certain expectation that our new birth will bring us into eternal life. Because what does verse 5 say? This inheritance is kept in heaven. It's being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This idea of guarding and protecting, it has this sense of like, of a, like a military, like an armed guard, guarding your heart, guarding your life, guarding your faith, securing it for you in eternity, upholding it. We're protected and upheld. What does it say? By God's power. See, God's power is keeping you with him, keeping this hope alive, protecting you so that this living hope can be manifested and so this inheritance will one day be yours. God's power is guarding us, but, but did you look there in verse 5? What does it say? Guarding us through faith. God is guarding you through your faith. He is sustaining you by sustaining your faith. And so he upholds you in faith until you receive your inheritance. The salvation, it says, that's going to come and be ours at the coming of Christ. The resurrection brings us to life. How can you be right with God? How can you have righteousness and stand before a holy creator? Because we are raised with Christ, born again into a righteousness by faith how can you have hope how can you have hope in the midst of a broken world and an uncertain future because you are raised with christ born again to a living hope by mercy 